Well, good morning, church family. Uh, this is week three of our quarantine and social distancing efforts to minimize the spread of COVID-19, this coronavirus that is spreading around the globe. And we would much rather be gathering together today as the Church of God, but out of love and concern for one another, and uh, just to do our part to help minimize the spread of this disease, uh, we are uh, apart. We are the scattered church today, but uh, we want to focus our attention on the Word of God this morning. We also find ourselves today on Palm Sunday, uh, the Lord's Day, in which we celebrate the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem and symbolizing his royalty as the Messiah, the Son of David, uh, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And uh, so today we want to focus our attention on the theme of Palm Sunday. And Matthew 21 records this event for us in verses 1 through 11. Matthew says in Matthew 21, verse 1, As they approached Jerusalem, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that, that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And as we think about this event that is recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, there are a number of significant truths being revealed to us in this one act of the Lord Jesus. Uh, it is clear that by this time in Jesus' ministry, the time for the fulfillment of his ultimate mission has come. And so Jesus is with very uh, clear perspective and very clear determination, focused on Jerusalem and focused on the mission that his father has for him. And so when he enters Jerusalem on that first day of the week before Passover, uh, Jesus knows what is coming. He knows that his mission is coming to a climax when he will be offered up as a sacrifice for the sins of God's people. And so he is entering Jerusalem uh, in the week in which he will be a suffering Savior. 
And when you think about it, that those two scenes, those two pictures, I, I can imagine from a casual observer, the the ordinary person in Jesus' day, those two images were irreconcilable. How can someone enter into Jerusalem as a king in royalty? And then opposed to that, we see the image of the cross of someone dying in shame as a criminal. And those two images don't seem to go together. But in the plan of God, they go together perfectly. In fact, one must come before the other. And that is, Jesus told his disciples after his resurrection, he said, did you not know, have you not read in the scriptures, that first the Messiah must suffer? and then enter into his glory. And so the path before Jesus was clear. He came to save. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to suffer in fulfillment of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And so he went to the cross, giving himself for God's people. But then he rose from the dead, and he rose triumphantly. He rose in victory And he ascended to heaven at the right hand of God, where he assumed his throne, over which he is ruling with all authority and power, and all of his enemies are being brought under his submission, under his feet. And so, in a way, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, just a few days before his cross, was but a foretaste. It was a picture of what was about to come, and that is the triumphal resurrection and ascension and the assumption of the throne by Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the royal son of David. And as we read Matthew 21, uh, there are a couple of Old Testament texts that serve as important background for what Matthew is recording for us. Uh, One of those Old Testament backgrounds is in Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 provides the language of the people when, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the people cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! And that language comes from Psalm 118. It's language of praise, language of giving glory to God for what they were seeing unfold right before their very eyes. Uh, But there's another Old Testament text that serves as the background for what Matthew records. And in fact, Matthew says that what Jesus did that day in Jerusalem fulfilled this scripture. And that scripture comes from Zechariah chapter 9. In Zechariah chapter 9, and in quoting that in Matthew 21, verse 4, Matthew says, All of this, this triumphal entry of Jesus, took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And this is the prophet Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That language comes from Zechariah 9, verse 9. 
And most of us have read Matthew 21 countless times. And so we've come across this language from Zechariah 9.9. But I would dare say that many of us have never really thought deeply and contextually about what is happening in Zechariah 9 and the, the place where this one verse is quoted from in Matthew 21. And what I want to do with you this morning, just for the few minutes that we have, is to focus our attention on Zechariah chapter 9 and to kind of see the broader context of what the prophet Zechariah is offering to the people of God and how this one verse fits into that bigger picture. And so Zechariah 9 unfolds for us, first of all, that the Lord will triumph in victory over the enemies of his people. So the first eight verses of Zechariah 9 describe God's triumph over his enemies. Verses 1 through 8 is language of judgment, of God avenging in righteous justice, God avenging the enemies of his people who have mistreated them, who have treated them badly, oppressed them, throughout their history. And so this is God's uh, justice, his victorious justice against those enemies of Jerusalem. And so Zechariah 9 verse 1 says, a prophecy, the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest on Damascus for the eyes of all people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. And on Hamath, too, which borders on it, and on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king and Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an impressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. So we see in this passage that God is in victory, going to triumph over his enemies. And the way that he's going to do this first is he's going to defeat his foes. The Lord is going to defeat his foes. And what we see in verses 1 through 6 is a list of several city or place names. And the list of these names is essentially a record of some of the traditional enemies of Israel that have oppressed them and, and given them difficult times throughout their history. In particular, 
the names that are mentioned here are to the north of Israel and run along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the areas that would be known as Phoenicia or the, the historic lands of the Philistines. And so we see several names that are listed here. Uh, we see the name Hadrach, which is a place in northern Syria. And uh, also listed together with that is Hamath. These two places were in the region of Syria, and they were oftentimes regarded as the northern border of Israel. And at different times in Israel's history, especially during the times of David or of Solomon, when the kingdom was its largest, some of these places were within the borders of Israel. But at other times, they were outside of the borders of Israel, and they gave Israel a, a difficult time. They were opposed to them. And so now God is saying to them, I'm going to defeat you. I'm going to bring you down. Uh, we also have mentioned Damascus. Uh, many scholars believe that Damascus was the capital of Syria uh, during this time. And uh, Damascus, throughout Israel's history, was sometimes allied with Israel, but oftentimes opposed to it and caused Israel harm. And so here God is saying, I'm going to bring justice on Damascus. Uh, we also have mentioned Tyre and Sidon. These were two Phoenician cities, very important cities along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, they were wealthy cities. Uh, they were wealthy. We see mentioned in verse number three and four, the idea that um, Tyre had silver and gold like the sand of the seashore, uh, probably giving the idea of a symbolism of their wealth. Uh, we also have mentioned in this passage the wisdom of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, so they put their hope in their wisdom. They put their hope in their riches. But what Zechariah is providing the people with here from the Lord is a message of hope, reminding them that God is ultimately going to show his justice, his righteousness against the enemies of his people. And Tyre and Sidon can trust in their wisdom or their wealth all they want to, but that can't stand up against the mighty power of God. We see mentioned in this passage uh, four of the five traditional locations within the ancient land of the Philistines. And so we see Ashdod and Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron. Uh, those four places were within uh, the traditional lands of the Philistines. And again, at times, some of those cities may have fallen within Israel's jurisdiction. But we also know that at many times in Israel's history, the Philistines were a thorn in the side of the Israelites. And so God is announcing his judgment on them. So this whole list of foes in verses 1 through 6, God says, I'm going to defeat them. I'm going to destroy them. They're not going to have any place to run. They can trust in their riches or in their wisdom, but they're not going to help them on the day of judgment. And so God is going to, in victory for his people, defeat his foes. But then we see in verse 7 something very interesting mentioned, and that is that the Lord will deliver a remnant. And so God is going to defeat these peoples, Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Damascus, Hadrach, Hamath, uh, the, these four cities of the Philistines. God is going to defeat them, 
But there are going to be some that remain. There's going to be a remnant. And what Zechariah says is of these remnant that remain, God is going to have mercy on them and he's going to bring them in. He's going to make them a part of God's people. And so in verse 7, it says, I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. And this is probably a reference to their pagan Gentile food practices. So outside of Israel, outside of God's people, the Gentiles around them, they would eat uh, forbidden meat, meat that was considered forbidden by the Israelites under the Mosaic law. They would also eat meat with blood in it, which was also prohibited by the Mosaic law. And so when God says here through Zechariah, I'm going to take the blood out of their mouths. I'm going to take this forbidden meat out of their mouths is saying God is going to purify them. He's going to purify them and he's going to bring them in. And it says those who are left will belong to our God and they will become a clan in Judah. And so these remnant survivors will be assimilated, incorporated into God's people. It's really an act of mercy for them, that God not only spares them, but then brings them in to his covenant. And in fact, it says that they will be like the Jebusites. And this is a reference back to the earliest times of Israel and Canaan, in which the Jebusites became a part of God's people and lived among them. And, and that's what this is saying. These, these people of Ekron, the land of the Philistines, they're going to become assimilated into and a part of God's people in the land of Israel. And so God's going to defeat his foes, but he's going to deliver and have mercy on a remnant. And verse 8 says the Lord will defend his people. The Lord's going to come and he's going to watch over his holy city. Verse 8 says, but I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. What is fascinating about Zechariah 9 is that Zechariah is writing at a time after the Babylonian exile. So the people of Judah have already gone into exile in Babylon for roughly 70 years, as punishment for their previous sins. But now by the time of Haggai and Zechariah, they have come home. They have been allowed to return under the, under the rule of the Persians, under Cyrus the Great. They've been allowed to return. And we read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah, contemporaries of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. So the people of Judah have already come home. They're reestablishing Life, culture, society, worship in Jerusalem. Uh, Ezra describes the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah describes the rebuilding of the wall. And here in Zechariah 9, God says, I'm going to defend my people. I'm going to defend, I'm going to defend my city. Now, what's interesting and something that we have to wrestle with in understanding the fulfillment of Zechariah 9 verse 8 is if you move forward from the time of Zechariah, you come into a time of Greek rule in which Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucids, came in and oppressed the people of Israel 
in Jerusalem. They profaned the temple. They offered desecrated sacrifices on the altar in Jerusalem. They they committed blasphemous things. They murdered and killed a lot of the Jewish people. And so how does that fit with Zechariah 9 verse 8, that God is going to defend his city? We could also read later on in, in uh, the time of Jesus and following that in AD 70, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground, and it has not stood since that day. So in what sense does Zechariah mean here that God is going to defend his people and never again let an oppressor run over them? I can't help but think that the the ultimate fulfillment of this is not in the here and now, but in the future. That the ultimate fulfillment of this promise is not in the days of Zechariah. Because following Zechariah, the Greeks are going to give Jerusalem a hard time. The Romans are going to give Jerusalem a hard time. In fact, Jesus said in the Gospels that Jerusalem is going to be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so I see what Zechariah 9 referring to is an actually future glorious time in which there will be a new Jerusalem, a, a glorious Jerusalem that will never again be overrun, that will never again be destroyed, that will be protected. And so it's talking about the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, Zechariah 9.8. So this is a time in which God is going to bring judgment. He is going to assimilate and draw in a remnant into his people. And he's also going to protect his people. And so God is going to win a mighty victory over the enemies of his people. Then we come to the verses 9 and 10 that Matthew quotes from in the context of the triumphal entry of Christ. And it reveals that the Lord will install his messianic king in Jerusalem. And so in this context of Zechariah 9, God's triumph over his enemies, God's protection over his people, God is going to install his royal messianic king in Jerusalem. And so Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And verse 10 says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He, that is the Messiah, this king will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so what is this passage teaching us? It's teaching us about the reign of Messiah. It's talking about the glorious kingdom of the Messiah. And what it's saying is that when this kingdom comes, the Messiah King will be installed in Jerusalem. And the imagery in which he will come to Jerusalem is the same imagery in which Jesus rode into Jerusalem in Matthew 21. He comes riding on a, a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
it's a symbol of humility. It's a symbol of peace, not on a war horse in warfare, but in peace and in humility, in the humility of righteousness. And this king will enter, even though he is the appointed king, the one to rule God's people, he will be a meek and a humble, a kind and lowly king coming in peace to reign in righteousness and in justice. And you can see God's love and kindness for his people in these tender words of daughter Zion, daughter Jerusalem. God loves Zion. He loves Jerusalem. And he loves to install his messianic king in his holy city. And when he comes, he will come in humility, but he will also come in victory. He will come in righteousness and justice. And also when he comes, he will bring peace. He's going to get rid of the weapons of warfare. He's going to get rid of the battle bow. He's going to get rid of the war horses and the chariots. At the time of the Messianic kingdom, it will be complete peace and joy. And the final part of verse 10 says that this kingdom of the Messiah will be a global kingdom. And so it's not just going to be in Jerusalem. It's going to be from sea to sea. It's going to be from the river to the ends of the earth. And this reference to the river could be referring to Euphrates. It could be referring to the river described in Genesis chapter 2, out of which these four branches come out. But either way, what verse 10 is describing is a global, universal rule of Messiah. It will be worldwide in scope. God, the Lord, is going to install his messianic king in Jerusalem. And in that, there is hope. And that's where Zechariah goes to in the last part of verses 11 through 17. God is going to victoriously uh, have triumph over his enemies. The Lord is going to install his messianic king in Jerusalem. And then the Lord is going to renew and restore his covenant people. The Lord will renew and restore his covenant people. So we read in Zechariah 9, verse 11, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. What is this referring to? Well, the theme of covenant is one that runs all through the Bible, isn't it? And the covenant that is being referred to here is most likely the Mosaic covenant that God made with the people of Israel at Sinai, but it could also be going back earlier than that to God's promise, his covenanted promise to Abraham that God is going to uh, watch over and protect Abraham and his descendants forever. But this is a covenant that is sealed with blood that God will not forsake. And so because God will not forsake his covenant, 
verses 11 through 17 of Zechariah are promising that God is going to restore, he's going to bring back and restore his people. And in the near term, the near history in which Zechariah is writing, this was fulfilled, at least in a partial way, when the people of Judah were able to return from Babylon. And, and perhaps that's what's mentioned here with the waterless pit, the deserts of Babylon, this uh, empty waterless well, if you will. And the people of God were rescued from that and they were brought back to Jerusalem. And so that has been in the very near past when Zechariah is writing. But it seems that Zechariah is not only referring to that, but he's also referring to something that is still future, that is still bigger and grander than that, a a bigger restoration of God's people. God's going to bring them back because of his covenant with them. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. And the idea of the fortress is probably the idea of back to Jerusalem, back to God's place of protection. Remember back in verse 8, it said that God was going to watch over Jerusalem. And so this is a reference to God calling his people back to his safety and protection. And he is going to restore them and bless them with twice as what they had. The idea is probably of a firstborn son who would receive a double portion, a double blessing of the inheritance. We're also reminded of Job when Job suffered these trials. And at the end of it, God restored him. And he not only restored him back to what he had, but he restored him double of what he had. And so this is God's blessing being poured out on his restoration, his restoration people. Verse 13 says, I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons Zion against your sons Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. So there is going to be peace in the kingdom of Messiah. But in the accomplishment of that ultimate peace, there will be first the necessity of triumph in battle by God with his people over his enemies. And so this is referring to God taking his people, Judah and Ephraim, and that is huge in thinking about what this is saying. Because since the time of Solomon, the kingdom had been split into Israel and Judah. Judah and Ephraim were two different peoples, two different countries. But now God is saying, in my restoration, in my regathering, I'm going to also reunify my people as one people under one shepherd, this messianic king who will enter Jerusalem on this colt, this foal of a donkey. And God is going to bring them back together in unity, and God through them is going to achieve victory over their foes. And this reference to Greece, to Javan in some translations, is probably the idea of maybe something that is coming down the line for God's people. Maybe it's a reference just in general 
to to all of the enemies of God's people that he is going to have triumph over in the bringing about of his ultimate kingdom of peace. In verse 14, he says, Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And so this is this is God, the, the cosmic God of the universe, the one who reigns over everything and doing his will, accomplishing his purposes in the world and bringing his people back from the four winds of heaven. And the Lord Almighty will shield them and they will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. These are just images. These are literary metaphorical images of victory, of triumph, and of the spoils of war that come to those who triumph. It is a God's blessing on his people in restoring them to their land and their promise. And then Zechariah ends with the verses 16 and 17. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. So God's going to save them. He's going to restore them. They're going to be one people under one shepherd, this messianic king, and they will be God's jewels in his crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. Those references to grain and wine are merely symbols of prosperity, of blessing, of God raining down his kindness and blessing on his people. When is this going to be fulfilled? I take it that ultimately the whole picture of Zechariah 9, of God defeating his enemies ultimately, of God regathering his people and bringing them home, of God installing his king to reign in righteousness and peace over a global kingdom, Ultimately, all of these things cannot be fulfilled until the final kingdom, the final reign of Jesus Christ. There are aspects of it that were fulfilled, or at least initially a a small uh, foretaste fulfillment, if you will. When God brought Judah home from Babylon, that was a foretaste of the restoration that was coming. When, When God achieved victory, for the people of Israel, and was able to bring them home. That was a foretaste of this ultimate kingdom and blessing. I believe also, too, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that first day of the week before before Passover, the day in which he died, that was a foretaste of this ultimate messianic kingdom that is still to come. And so when Matthew then quotes from Zechariah 9.9, he's quoting it in hope. He's quoting it in terms of looking forward to what Jesus will accomplish, not just in that moment of riding into Jerusalem, but in the larger picture of God's plan for the ages, 
which necessitated Jesus going to the cross, rising from the grave, ascending to heaven where he assumed his throne over the universe in which he rules now rightfully as king and all of his enemies are being brought under his dominion. And one day he will return. And when Jesus returns, he will bring his kingdom to earth and it will be a global, a universal kingdom with him here reigning and ruling forever and ever. That is ultimately, I believe, what Zechariah 9 is pointing us to. And it's a message of hope. It's a message of hope to a people who are struggling, who are struggling in the face of foes, of enemies, of those who wanted to hurt them, of those who wanted to stop them from building the wall or stop them from completing construction on the temple. It was a message of hope to a people that seemed small, that seemed powerless, surrounded by larger powers and larger empires of Persia and then of Greece and then of Rome. God's people ultimately will triumph in a global, universal reign of their Messiah. And so with that thought of Zechariah 9, let's go back to Matthew 21 and read it again in its context. They came to Jerusalem. They approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead saying, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted from Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And I can't help but think as I read Matthew 21 in light of Zechariah 9, that there is a time coming in the future in which Jesus will once again ride in. He will ride in, in victory, in triumph, coming to reign. I can't help but imagine a time in the future Just like on that day when all those people were gathered along the roadside crying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is coming a time in the future when we see Jesus coming from heaven, riding in, in triumphal entry, and we as God's people crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to our Savior, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We long for that day. We desire for it to come. And so I think that Zechariah 9, in the midst of Matthew 21, is teaching us this. 
that the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem marks the dawn of the age of the Messianic King, which will ultimately culminate in the Lord's complete victory and restoration of his people. When Jesus came into Jerusalem that day, it marked the dawn of the Messianic age. In just a few days, Jesus was going to die, but then he was going to rise again. He was going to ascend to heaven in triumph and in victory, in dominion over all principalities and powers and rulers. And Jesus was going to receive ultimate sovereignty over the entire universe. And the Bible says that all things, all things are being brought under the subjection, under the dominion of Christ. And one day Christ will return. And this full restoration, this full triumph will be complete. But Matthew 21 records for us the dawn of it, the foretaste of it. And we yearn, as God's people, we yearn for this plan of God to be complete. In this time in which we're living, in which we see all kinds of uncertainty in our world. We see the uncertainty of not knowing how to handle this coronavirus. People are struggling, scientists, medical professionals, governmental officials, they're they're looking, they're searching for wisdom, they're doing their best to, to know how to navigate this current situation. There's economic uncertainty. We live in uncertain times. But here's the thing that we have confidence in from the scriptures. Matthew 21, Zechariah 9, they reveal to us that God has a plan that is continuing to unfold. And nothing can stop it. Not even the the treacherous schemes and plans of Judas Iscariot or of the Pharisees, the scribes, in plotting to kill Jesus, that did not thwart God's plan. Instead, it fulfilled it. There is nothing in this universe that can thwart God's plan. And so everything that is happening, it is all moving forward. It is all moving toward the ultimate goal of Christ being all in all, and all of heaven and earth being brought under his subjection. And one day he will return. And we look for that day. We long for it. And it's in that hope that we can celebrate that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we look forward to the time when Jesus will come in victory and we can enjoy as God's people the full restoration that he brings. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks and we give you praise because you have in your glorious plan of redemption, your glorious plan for the ages, you have established your purpose to rescue your people, to defeat your enemies, in victory, to restore your people, to bring them back and reunify them again, and to bring them under the loving, righteous, caring rule of our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for our King. 
the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he entered into Jerusalem that day to great praise and celebration. We're also thankful, Father, that a few days later, he gave himself for us. He laid down his life, even though he is a king, even though he's the creator of the universe, that he laid down his life for us to rescue us and to redeem us and to make us his people so that we might be restored and be a part of his kingdom. We're thankful, Father, that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is now reigning from heaven at your right hand. We're thankful that everything is being brought under his subjection. And we look forward, Father, to the hope that we have for his return. God, bless us as your people, and may we look to you always for our hope and our strength. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you have a blessed week.